Welcome to Hearing the Music Season 2. I'm Mark Bertrand. I'm a novelist and the pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church. My co-host is Delta David Geyer. He's the music director of the South Dakota Symphony. This season, we're taking an in-depth look at the artistry and theology of Bach's St. Matthew Passion. In this episode, though, we're going to change things up a little bit. Instead of plunging straight into the narrative of Matthew 26, first, we want to help you understand the context in which a masterpiece like Bach's was created. Then, David and I will pick up the story where we left off last time. This is Episode 2, The Last Supper. We want to set a larger context for this work and understand a little bit better how unprecedented the St. Matthew Passion is. To help us do that, David and I spoke with Jan Kaczka, who is a German-based church musician, organist, and lifelong Bach devotee. We asked Jan what was different about the St. Matthew Passion. Here's what he had to say. The first very important thing is that St. Matthew's Passion is not a singular oratorium which uh, popped up somewhere out of nothing. It is the result of a very long tradition of having the Passion of Christ in music to be heard on Good Friday. This did not only start with Bach, it was earlier. Already, I think, in some places in 16th century, after the Reformation, this became very common to have a performance of Christ's Passion according to St. John, St. Mark, St. Matthew, St. Luke, changing every year on Good Friday. What really is um, new with Bach is that his passions are so long. I know our performance took three and a half hours to complete. Three and a half hours for St. Matthew's Passion is not that long if you know that the service on Sunday morning in Leipzig every week took about four hours. This was just normal. There was one hour singing from eight o'clock in the morning. Exactly on nine o'clock, the priest started with a sermon, which was about one hour. After the sermon, the Lord's Supper, and it took also about one hour. And then in the end, again, one hour singing from eight o'clock in the morning to 12 o'clock each Sunday to, to be in church. Picking back up with the narrative of the St. Matthew Passion, we're at the point where the disciples come to Jesus and ask him, where do you want us to celebrate the Passover? You'll hear the question from the disciples being voiced here by the chorus. At this point, David, things start to get a little complicated. So can you walk us through what we're about to hear? Of course. Once this question has been posited by the disciples, Jesus tells them where to go to prepare the Passover, which takes us into the upper room. The evangelist brings us to a point where Jesus tells his disciples in an anguished voice that one of them is about to betray him. The evangelist then says that disciples were disturbed. Each one of them says, Lord, is it I? Which is another chorus followed by a chorale, which says, it is I. I'm the one. Mich, 
music you've just heard, we have a beautiful example of something that Bach does throughout the St. Matthew Passion, something that you wouldn't notice if you didn't have the score open in front of you. We asked Dr. Timothy Campbell, the chorus master of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, to explain what's happening beneath the surface. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they all say, is it I? And in German, Herr bin ich? Is it I? Is it I? Bin ich? They say over and over, and if you would look at the music, if you count the the number of times they ask that, it's 11. So 11, so one disciple perhaps remaining silent. Presumably Judas, who already knows the answer. In in Scripture, Jesus would say, it's the one who put his hand with mine in the dish. But at that moment, Bach has the the listening congregation sing in a chorale, Ich bin's, it's I. We move forward now in the narrative to the Last Supper, the institution of the Eucharist, the sacrament of communion by Jesus, who takes the bread and blesses it, who takes the cup and blesses it, and offers them to those around the table as his body and his blood. It's an important moment in the narrative of the Passion, and it is the most substantial part of the role of Jesus, which is sung in our performance by Stephen Bryant, who I have to say was extraordinarily gracious because he was willing to fill in at the last moment when someone else dropped out, and when we caught up to him to talk about this role, he was actually in the south of France, but he still made time out for us to discuss what it was like to take on the role of Jesus. The biggest part of the role is when he is at the Last Supper, when he's telling them also that he's going to be betrayed, but then he also gives the communion, which is one of the most important parts of the whole passion of Christ. And so I concentrated on that part. As a believer in Christ and in what he's accomplishing with his crucifixion, I just tried to bring as much of that belief coupled with the music coupled with thinking of the strings, thinking of the continuo and the organ, and how the organ is always present with Christ singing during the Passion. I just tried to do 
the best I've ever could to bring that to, to the consciousness of the audience. We know that everyone in the audience doesn't feel the same. I mean, all I could do is try to, to be as musical and soulful to bring box music to the hearts of those in the audience. You know, I mean, <laughs> how can one play the role of Jesus in, in any artistic endeavor? But all you can do is try to bring your ego away from as much of it as possible to bring the spirit through. The gospel narrative is once again set up with the recitative, with the evangelist singing with a very sparse accompaniment, and once again Jesus surrounded by that halo of the string orchestra. Does he have of the Lord's Supper and Jesus telling us that he's going to leave is again a personal one, uh, which is expressed through a set of recitative and aria for soprano. It's interestingly accompanied by two oboe d'amore. Each of the oboists in the St. Matthew Passion plays three different instruments. The oboe that we're familiar with, also another instrument we're more or less familiar with, which Bach calls the oboe caccia, which we would call the English horn, which is a lower version of the oboe. But in between those two is the oboe d'amore. And here we have two oboe d'amore accompanying the soprano, along with the continuo again, which is the organ and cello and bass. Here is our soprano, Hannah Celeste Lou, telling us how she personally feels about this recitative and aria. This was what I believe as a person, as Hannah. It starts with the recitative talking about how my heart's swimming in tears. I'm sad because Jesus is leaving, but his testament brings me joy. Everything he's done brings peace to me, and I love him to the end. And then the aria goes into, I will give you my heart. 
my savior. I will sink into you. Although the world is too small for you, you alone shall be for me more than heaven and earth. There is darkness in this world. And then all of a sudden, this aria comes and said, you, you're going through this. I will give you everything that I possibly can. And I will sink into you and I will live for you because you are more to me than heaven and earth. And that has more of a lilting feel that it's a, it's a happier sounding aria, probably one of the most happier sounding arias in the in the passion. But it still had a heaviness because I almost felt I shouldn't be that joyful in a passion. can certainly hear the joy in that music. And it's a joy that I think is very appropriate for myself as a pastor. When I administer communion, joy is the emotion we feel as we come to the table. If you look at the translation of the recitative, it says, although my heart swims in tears, because Jesus takes leave of us, yet his testament makes me glad. His flesh and blood, oh preciousness, he bequeaths into my hands. When we come to the table at church, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus are offered to us in the bread and the cup. That is a gesture of hospitality as we gather around the table, and it speaks to something important here, union with Christ. The reason why we come to the table is to celebrate the fact that by His grace we are united 
with him. And that's part of the answer to this question of why the cross? Why the cross? Well, because we needed to be reunited with God through Christ. We long for a union with Christ, which is expressed in the words of the soprano aria. I will give my heart to thee, sink thyself in it, my salvation. I will submerge myself in thee. Before we enter back into the gospel narrative, we talked with our evangelist, Timothy Bench, about how he approaches this role It's very instructive to hear him speak because it's something he's done many, many times. And yet, to keep it fresh, he has to enter into it very personally. The St. Matthew is, well, it's incredibly difficult. And for me, it's the most demanding role in all of the oratory repertoire. And I enjoy that, but it's also very scary. I approach it with a lot of fear and trembling, a lot of prayer, but eager to enter into a profound experience. I approach the evangelist the same way I would approach any operatic role, which is getting into the character and really going as deep as I can. I'm going to sing this with passion, and I'm going to sing it like I mean it. I'm going to sing it as someone who wants to get this message across, but want to enter fully into the character of what's going on. Of course, we don't know for sure who Matthew was. Was he the disciple? Was he a different Matthew? Either way, it's safe for me to enter into the character of a firsthand witness. Matthew was one who was there during parts of the crucifixion, at least, or the trials, or was with Jesus. And that certainly adds then a level of drama to the part that cannot be a distant interpretation. It has to be passionate and up close. I think we'll hear exactly what he means in this next recitative, where the evangelist shifts the scene for us. We are leaving the upper room, leaving the setting of the Last Supper, and now moving towards the Mount of Olives, where Jesus and his disciples will spend time in prayer at Gethsemane. So we'll hear the evangelist making the transition, and then we'll hear the words of Jesus as he warns his disciples that they will be scattered. Und da sie den Lobgesang gesprochen hatten, gingen sie hinaus an den Ölberg. Da sprach Jesus zu ihnen, in dieser Nacht werdet ihr euch alle ergen an mir. Wenn es steht geschrieben, ich werde den Hirten schlagen und die Sonne der Erde werden sich zerstreuen. The chorale which follows will be recognizable to many people who are listening. Most of us have sung it our whole lives in church with the words, O sacred head thou wounded. 
The German text here is Erkenne mich mein Hüter, uh, acknowledge me, my guardian, my shepherd, take me in. From you, source of all goodness, as much good come to me. It's one of those moments where you realize that a really familiar hymn is actually something you only know in translation. The original was German and is used as this text. That's right. Each time it comes around, five times in the St. Matthew Passion, it's the tune is the same, but the words are different and the harmonies are drastically different each time. It's driving me nuts sometimes because I'll hear little bits of it as I listen and I'll, I'll almost feel like I could sing along and then things will change or I'll, I'll doubt myself. But why would he take a familiar tune like this and, and use it this way? Well, the congregation in Leipzig would have been very familiar with not just the tune, but also the words of this chorale. There's a lot of contention, a lot of disagreement about whether they actually joined in and sang or not. But we did have a conversation with Jan Kaczka about this very thing. Jan, did people sing along with the music? <laughs> That's a very good question because we do not know exactly. Actually, I have been on a research team to find out exactly about this question, if the congregation joined in the chorals and it's not really clear we tried it took about two years to collect all information we could get there are a few hints which could mean that the congregation joined in singing but still not very clear if this was Bach's intention it's difficult for a lot of people now church music being what it is today in various denominations within the church to imagine the amount of attention, care, given to musical worship. Now, Bach is a singular figure, but like you say, it grew out of a tradition, almost two centuries old by the time Bach was, was participating in it. What is it, Jan, the, about the church, about the Lutheran church, that focused so much on musical art? I think this is really singular in history. The Lutheran church really is special in that way because in that church music is not let's say like an ornament but music is in the center of the church life and this came from Martin Luther himself because he said that music is for him personally number two after theology. Music is heavenly. Music comes directly 
from heaven. This meant that in Luther's reformational church, he implemented music as the second center of preaching next to the sermon. It is almost on the same level than the sermon, which means it is not ornament, it is not beautiful sound, but the text is the most important. And this is not an, just an addition to the sermon, but it belongs together. And also, but the, the quality of the music must at least approach the quality of the text. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And Martin Luther did a second thing. He said education of young people is something the church should be responsible for. So he started founding schools in every small village where young people learn to read, to write, learn about the catechismus, the, the main ideas of Lutheran faith, and singing. These were the four most important subjects in school, in every small village. And they really, children, have been educated in singing from a very young age on, which meant that in every village you had a church and a school. I did a lot of research and I found several yeah, libraries of music in local, very small villages from 17th century, the time in which Bach, in fact, grew up himself. And it's absolutely amazing what they were singing in these small places every Sunday in their services, unimaginably today. Mm -hmm. The basis that the congregation was able to sing choral melodies in the, in the service was that they had grown up in this system where they learned all these melodies in school. And as you can imagine, when these boys grow up and work in a small village on a farm, working with their hands and came to the service on Sunday morning, they all had been trained in the, with their voices to sing. So you can imagine how the congregation is singing must have sounded in that time. In Leipzig, of course, this had been Bach's pupils. We really don't know who, who sang, who, who had been singing all those arias, those tenor and bass arias, difficult parts in Bach's music. Maybe his pupils, his sons, maybe <laughs> older pupils, students, but they all grew up in their system. So this, this is the basis, the fundamental for everything. Without this implementing music deeply in the whole population, someone like Bach would, wouldn't have been possible. Thanks for listening to episode two, The Last Supper. Join us next time as we travel with Jesus and his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the meantime, for more information on Hearing the Music and for bonus content, visit us online at hearingthemusic.org. Mm -hmm.